So if you'll notice, uh, the bulletin for today is uh, the old bulletin from two weeks ago. There was a, a snafu, so the two bulletins got switched. So that means that the, there's a couple of changes. So the, the reading of the word on page 9 is going to be changed to Matthew 11. The title of the sermon on page 11 is different. It's, Are You the One Who Is to Come? And on page 13, it mentions the Lord's Supper, but we will not be having the Lord's Supper today. So the text for today's sermon, as I said, is Matthew chapter 11. And if you would rise, let us give our attention to the reading of God's word. We'll read the entire chapter, beginning in Matthew 11, verse 1. When Jesus had finished instructing his twelve disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear, what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. 
Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Thus far the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's ask the Lord's blessing upon the preaching of his word. O God, as we come now to hear your word, fill us with your spirit. Soften our hearts that we may humbly receive what you have to say to us today from your word. Open our eyes that we may see Jesus, our divine Savior, in all his beauty and glory. Subdue our wills that we may follow him and do your will. This we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Today, I want to speak to you on the topic of doubt. Doubt comes in many forms. Sometimes we have intellectual doubts about the truthfulness of Christianity or the truth of the Bible. Sometimes we don't have intellectual doubts, but spiritual doubts. For example, we have doubts that are caused by our own sinfulness. When we see our continued struggles with sin, we wonder whether we really have been transformed by God's grace and whether we really are his children. Another thing that causes doubts is uh, suffering, the problem of evil. When we see bad things happening to good people, when we see innocent people being murdered and oppressed by the wicked, we wonder where God is. We wonder why he lets such bad things happen. In our text today, Matthew 11, we have another example of doubt. John the Baptist is doubting. He's doubting whether Jesus really is the Messiah. We're told in verse 2, When John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? That's why I've titled the sermon, Are You the One Who Is to Come? John the Baptist is sitting in Herod's prison. And he hears about the miracles being performed by Jesus. And not only by Jesus, but you have to remember also by the disciples themselves in Jesus' name. If you go back to Matthew 10, the previous chapter, you'll see that Jesus had, had commissioned the apostles and sent them out to heal the sick, to raise the dead, to cleanse lepers and cast out demons. The preaching and healing ministry of Jesus has now been amplified by the megaphone of the apostles as they are sent out to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Something big is going on. This is headline news. The healing miracles of Jesus, amplified by the megaphone of the apostles, are signs of the presence of the kingdom of God. They're signs indicating that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the king of the kingdom of God. But here is John sitting in Herod's prison wondering what's going on. He's here, hearing about all these miracles, and he's wondering, okay, this is great, this is wonderful, but if Jesus really is the Messiah, then why am I sitting here in this dungeon? 
Let's sympathize with John for a moment. You can understand his confusion. Remember, back in Matthew chapter 4, he had been preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's right on the verge of happening. He was the forerunner and herald of the Messiah. He said that there is one coming after me who is mightier than I, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He was also there at the baptism of Jesus when the voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. But now John is in prison and he's confused. He's wondering if Jesus really is the Messiah. Because if Jesus really is the Messiah, wouldn't he bring in the kingdom as he had said that the kingdom is at hand? And wouldn't that mean bringing judgment on all the wicked, including Herod, the one who cast him into prison? John was expecting the end of the world. He was expecting the day of judgment. He was expecting that the day of judgment would come, the wicked would be destroyed, and the Messiah would set up the eternal kingdom right then and there. He wasn't expecting a Messiah like Jesus, who comes to bring healing and salvation to sinners, but without bringing the judgment upon the wicked. A Messiah like Jesus, who actually will be rejected by the Jewish leadership and will suffer at their hands. And so Jesus then creates this problem. This, this, the expectations are not being fulfilled as John had been taught to expect. And so John sends his disciples to Jesus with this urgent question. Are you the one who is to come? Or perhaps we should look for someone else. My sermon has three points today. First is the cure for doubt. We'll look at that in verses 4 through 6, the response of Jesus to the doubt of John. So the first point is the cure for doubt. The second point is the thing that is worse than doubt in verses 7 through 24. And the third point is Jesus' gracious invitation to those who are struggling with doubt in verse 25 to 30. So first, the cure for doubt. How does Jesus respond to John's doubts? What is the cure for doubt? Jesus' response is to point to the miraculous deeds that he is doing as the Messiah. Jesus lists six types of miracles. But the key is that when he describes these six types of miracles, he uses language that is taken from the Old Testament. Actually, they're all taken from one particular book of the Old Testament. That is, the prophecy of Isaiah. And he does this in order to demonstrate to John that his ministry is indeed the fulfillment of prophecy, even though it's not happening quite as he expected. The blind receive their sight, and the deaf hear. Those two phrases are both taken from Isaiah 35, verse 5, which says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame walk, that's taken from the very next verse, Isaiah 35, verse 6. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. The lepers are cleansed is the only miracle in the list that does not have an explicit Old Testament prophecy to back it up, but it's probably connected in a general way to Isaiah 53, which says, He, the suffering servant of the Lord, took our illnesses and bore our diseases, a verse that Matthew himself quoted a couple of chapters earlier in Matthew 8, verse 17 right after narrating the healing, the cleansing of a leper. The dead are raised is from Isaiah 26, verse 19. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. 
And the poor have the good news preached to them. It's from Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Preaching the good news to the poor is mentioned last intentionally because it emphasizes it. It shows what I have been mentioning in previous sermons on Matthew that the miracles of healing that Jesus performs are not an end in themselves, but they're subordinate to the most important thing, which is the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of the good news of the kingdom of God. The outward miracles are outward signs confirming the inward spiritual reality of salvation. Being healed from a physical illness is a sign, like a sacrament almost, of the inward reality of being healed from sin and being forgiven. So why does Jesus quote from Isaiah when describing his healing ministry? Because he's making an argument. These passages from Isaiah are all about the day of the Lord. All of these passages are looking ahead to the final consummation of all things, the new heavens and the new earth, the fulfillment and the consummation of God's kingdom plan. And so by quoting these verses, Jesus is saying this. He's saying, look, the scriptures of the prophets foretold this day, and now it's all coming to pass in me. I am the Messiah, and I am bringing in the eschatological kingdom of God. My miracles are the signs of the presence of the kingdom and the proof that I am the Messiah. What then is the cure for doubt? The cure for doubt is these two things that Jesus points to. He points to his mighty miracles, which Matthew calls the deeds of the Christ, and secondly, the fulfillment of Scripture. John's doubts come from self-pity. They come from looking at himself and his circumstances. Jesus takes John's eyes off of himself and raises them up to look at the objective deeds of the Christ, which are done in the fulfillment of scriptural prophecy. The deeds that the Messiah is doing are very specific. The blind receiving the sight, the lame walking, the deaf hearing, the dead being raised. These are very specific deeds that were specifically promised long ago in the prophetic scriptures. And so the fact that they're happen happening now in Christ, by Christ, shows that he is the fulfillment of the promises of God. Of course, Jesus made this argument to John, look at the deeds and look at the fulfillment of Scripture. He made this argument to John before his own death and resurrection. But now that the death and resurrection of Jesus have happened, we, from another vantage point of history, we could add to the list, right? We could add to the list that Jesus gives. We could say, go and tell the one who doubts what you see and what you hear. The Lamb of God has been slain for our sins and has been raised from the dead as the sign that his sacrifice is accepted and that God is satisfied. And all this happened to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets which said that the Messiah would suffer and only then enter into his glory. We could think of passages like Isaiah 53 and the Psalms which all speak of the sufferings and the exaltation of the Messiah. The cure for doubt, then, is not to look at yourself and your circumstances, but to look away from yourself to the objective work of Christ. Jesus told the disciples of John, go and tell John what you hear and what you see. He's focusing on outward things, what you hear and what you see. These are things that take place objectively. They have nothing to do with your situation, with your self-pity, with your feelings, with your sadness, and with your discouragement. 
Your subjective feelings will mislead, mislead you, and they come and go. Dwelling on your circumstances will mislead you. The only thing that will cure your doubt is to hear once again the objective truths of the gospel, of Jesus' life, his ministry, his obedience, his death, and his resurrection and exaltation. These are the things that we have heard and seen. These are the things that have happened outside of ourselves. Doubters need to hear the proclamation of the good news that the kingdom of God has come in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Just imagine if you were in John's shoes. Imagine yourself sitting in that prison when the disciples came back, the disciples of John came back and reported to John what, his, what the response of Jesus was. Can you imagine that? That would have been very encouraging to John. It is the same for you. Whatever your prison is that you are sitting in right now, you too have received the same words of assurance and joy and confidence from Christ himself. Go and tell John. Go and tell the one sitting in the prison of doubt what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. And the poor, the needy, the humble, those in prison, those doubting, they have the good news of the gospel preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now Jesus is done addressing John's doubt. But then in verses 7 through 24, he turns to the crowds and he addresses them. And this is the second point, the thing that is worse than doubt. The thing you have to understand is that John may be struggling with doubt because of his circumstances, but the crowds and the Jewish people in general, especially the scribes and the Pharisees and the leaders, they have a much worse spiritual problem that is afflicting them, much worse than doubt. They are lost in outright unbelief. I call this section the thing that is worse than doubt. What is that? What is worse than doubt? Well, it is unbelief, but it is the unbelief that stems from a deeper condition, which is the condition of self-righteousness. Those who are self-righteous, those who think that they're good, those who think that they're right with God based on their own obedience and their own goodness, they have no need of a Savior like Jesus to save them from their sins. They think they're doing just fine. Thank you very much. And that's why they refuse to believe in this Messiah, a Messiah who comes to heal, a Messiah who comes to be the friend of sinners, a Messiah who comes to die. Now you can see the unbelief of the crowds in verses 16 through 19. This is the parable of the children in the marketplace. It's a little bit confusing at first, but just look at it there. Jesus says in verse 16, To what shall I compare this generation? The generation of the Jews living at this time. It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you. That's joyful music. And you did not dance. We sang a dirge. That's sad music. And you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking. That's the sad music. And they say, oh, he has a demon. They reject that. The Son of Man comes eating and drinking. That's the happy music. And they say, look at him. He's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. 
The Jews didn't want a message of judgment calling them to repentance. That was the message of John, the gloomy, sad message of John, because they didn't think they needed to repent. It hit at their sense of self-security and self-righteousness to be told, you better repent and get right with God because the day of judgment is coming and if you're not ready, you're going to be judged. So they rejected that message. But they also didn't want a message of mercy shown to sinners. The message of Jesus, the joyful, happy flute message because they didn't want the finger of judgment to be, to be pointed at them. They wanted the finger of judgment to be pointed at the obvious sinners, the tax collectors and the prostitutes and those that obviously needed to be judged. The unbelief of the crowds rejecting both messages, both the message of John and the message of Jesus, both the message of judgment and repentance and the message of joy and forgiveness is a symptom of a deeper problem which is that they are self-righteous. They think they have it all together. They just are waiting for a Messiah to come, get rid of the Romans, and place them in positions of authority and power, and everything will be great. The unbelief and self-righteousness of the crowds is highlighted again in verses 20 through 24 when Jesus pronounces woe on the cities of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. These are all cities in Galilee where Jesus did most of his miracles. And Jesus asks, for example, he says, You, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You think that you're going to be exalted to heaven, right? No, you will be brought down to the depths of Hades. They thought they would be exalted because they thought they were worthy. They thought that when the Messiah came, they would be exalted at his right hand and ruling over the nations. They thought they were righteous. They thought they deserved to be not only delivered from the oppression of the Romans, but to be highly exalted in the Messianic kingdom. How wrong they were. The people should have seen Jesus' miracles and they should have believed that he really was the long-awaited promised Messiah in fulfillment of scriptures. But that would mean that they would have to repent of their sin and come to this Messiah in humble faith, in need, calling upon him for forgiveness and mercy and grace. But they did not want a Messiah like that. They wanted a Messiah who would satisfy their sense of self-importance not a Messiah who would call them to repentance. They wanted a military hero who had cast off the yoke of the Roman imperial oppression, not a Messiah who had come to suffer and die for their sins. Now it's interesting too, if you look in verse 12, there's a contrast between the unbelief and self-righteousness of the crowds and these individuals in verse 12 whom Jesus mentions. They are the exact opposite of the self-righteous. Look at what Jesus says in verse 12. It's a little bit puzzling at first. He says, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. Who are the violent here? At first you might think these are bad people, violent people. But actually, I think that Jesus is referring here to the same people he had referred to earlier in the passage, whom he calls the poor, the poor that have the gospel preached to them the lepers who are cleansed, the blind who receive their sight, and so on. They are those who are eagerly and zealously striving to enter the kingdom of God, unlike the self-righteous, self-satisfied majority of the nation of Israel. It refers to the people who are coming to Jesus out of a sense of need and coming to him in order to enter the kingdom of salvation that he brings. Just think of some examples throughout the Gospels, right? 
Think of uh, the Syrophoenician woman, right? She's a Gentile. And Jesus said, look, I wasn't sent to the Gentiles, only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she clings to Jesus. She falls at his feet. She cries out, Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. You see, she's one of the violent ones who is laying hold of the kingdom because of her need. Or think of the Roman centurion who said, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. Or think of the two blind men on the road out of Jericho who cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. And the disciples and those following Jesus said, oh, tell them to be quiet. But Jesus said, no, they are the type of people who I came for. They are the lost that I came to find and to seek. Think of the woman with a flow of blood who said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. These are the quote-unquote violent. These are the desperate ones. These are the ones who will take not, they will not take no for an answer. They come to Jesus, falling at his feet, begging for the blessings of the kingdom of salvation. And because of their great faith, they receive the blessings they sought. And they stand in stark contrast with those who, because of, they are, because of their self-satisfied and self-righteous attitude, refuse to come to Christ and reject his claim to be the Messiah. What is worse than doubt? Self-righteousness. John has doubts, and yet he is included in the kingdom. The majority of the Jews, on the other hand, are filled with pride and self-righteousness, and so they reject Jesus as the Messiah, and sadly, they are headed for judgment. Now, at the very end, in verses 25 to 30, we see point number three, Jesus' gracious invitation to those struggling with doubt. In verse 25, Jesus turns away from denouncing Israel, and he directs his prayer to his heavenly Father. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. The so-called wise and understanding, who are they? Well, they're the elites, the intelligentsia, the leaders who are learned and in charge, people like the scribes and the Pharisees. Why do they refuse to believe that Jesus is the Messiah? It's not because they're not smart enough. It's not because there's not enough evidence to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. After all, the miracles are there, objectively proving that he is the Messiah. The objective evidence is there, plain for all to see. The problem is their hearts. The problem is that the Father has not opened their eyes so that they would get it, so that they would understand. Their self-righteousness has blinded them. In verse 27, Jesus says something truly amazing. He says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Father except sorry, no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. This is an amazing statement. Just think about the 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 gravity of saying that no one knows the Father except the Son. Since God is the creator, the creature cannot know God in his essence. There is no creature, whether human or angel, that can say that they know God in that absolute way. The creature can know some true things about God insofar as God has revealed himself through prophets and through scriptures and through types and shadows, 
But no creature can know God in his essence. No creature can know God himself. And yet Jesus says, I know God in that way. And not only that, but because I know God in that ultimate sense, I can reveal God the Father to anyone. Jesus is not a mere man. He is the divine Son of God. And because he is the divine Son of God, he has the power to reveal the Father to the little children, to the humble, to those who know their need, to those who are not the wise and understanding, not the proud and self-sufficient, but to the humble and the needy and those who come to him in faith. After Jesus finishes his prayer to the Father in the last three verses, he turns to us and he addresses us to those struggling with doubt. He says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is just one of the verses in the Bible containing the free offer of the gospel. The free offer of the gospel, the invitation to come to Christ and enjoy the blessings of salvation, forgiveness, eternal rest, and peace with God. These precious verses are like nuggets scattered throughout the Bible. Another one like it is John 6, verse 37, one of my personal favorite verses. It says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. There are many different ways that the free offer of the gospel can be put, many different formulations of it, but it's all the same. It's the same gospel invitation. It's the same promise. This promise of the gospel is so sweet. It gently calls you. It woos you with its assurance. It's so simple. It just says, come to me. What does it mean to come to Christ? Well, it means to believe in him and to trust in him. As the catechism says, what is faith in Jesus Christ? Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. Faith is simply resting. Faith is simply receiving Christ and resting upon him, not in anything else, not resting in your own accomplishments, in your own good works, not resting in your upbringing, not resting in your education, not resting in your money or your possessions, nothing but Christ, resting in him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. Notice what Jesus does not say when he's giving this invitation to us. There's, there's different ways that you hear people when they preach the gospel and they make the offer you hear different preachers, depending on their theological background, saying different things. But here are some things he does not say. For example, he does not say, There's nothing you can do. Only the elect can believe. Therefore, all you can do is wait for God to zap you, if you're elect. He doesn't say that. You might think a Calvinist preacher would say that. But that's not the free offer of the gospel. It might be true that only the elect can believe. But that's not the free offer of the gospel. Another thing Jesus does not say, he does not say, if you want to be assured of your salvation, then you must demonstrate that you're saved by bringing forth the following fruits of obedience and good works and evangelical righteousness. Those things are true. We must do those things. But that's not the free offer of the gospel. If Jesus said either of those two things, either just sit there and wait for lightning bolts to come down from heaven change you or do all these good works to prove that you're elect if Jesus had said those things would that be helpful to us in our doubts 
I don't think it would help very much. It would make us worse. It would drive us to madness. Jesus instead says something so simple, even a child can understand it. Come to me, and I will give you rest. So beautiful, so simple. It's not eloquent, it's not profound, it's not some deep philosophical insight, it's not uh, ten different things you can do to make your life better, it's just simply come to Christ, and he will give you rest. Augustine was a great thinker, He was highly trained in his day. He knew Latin in and out, all of the rhetorical flourishes he could use. And he loved to read the great Latin classics. He loved Cicero. He loved to imitate their style. And at first, when he first read the Bible, he was disappointed at how simple and rugged and sparse it was. But he said this. He said, I read in Plato and Cicero sayings wise and beautiful but I never read come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden what a great promise we have in Christ and it's an absolute promise there are no exceptions to it no one who has ever come to Christ has failed to find rest in him no one who has ever come to Christ has been turned away You can bank on this promise. It's a promise that has never turned out in retrospect to be false. It's a promise that has lying behind it the veracity and faithfulness of God himself and that has been sealed with the very blood of his only begotten son. Just as a $100 bill has behind it the full faith and credit of the United States of America, so this promise has the full faith and credit of the triune God backing it up. The Father is the one who sent the Son. The Son paid the price to seal the promise with His blood. And the Spirit applies the promise to your hearts by working faith in you and causing you to trust in the promise of Christ. What a cure for doubt we have in this promise. Jesus does not make a long list of requirements. He doesn't say you have to fit all these conditions first before this promise can be true of you. The only requirement is that you are weary and heavy laden. The only requirement is, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What are the loads that are wearing you down? Is it your own sin? Is it the law of God? Is it the expectations of other people? Is it the weariness of life? One of the main burdens that Matthew himself mentions is the burdens that the Pharisees placed upon the backs of the people. Legalistic judgment from other people who claim to be pious and claim to be religious is a huge load that burdens us. We feel judged because we're not living up to their standards. And it makes us groan under its weight. It makes us feel that we are unworthy of Christ. But there is no such thing as being unworthy of Christ. As the old hymn says, all the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. That's the only requirement. Do you struggle with doubt? Jesus, the mighty Savior, invites you to come to him. And he promises that if you come to him, you will indeed find rest. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for the free offer of the gospel. How we thank you that Jesus is the Christ. And that he freely invites us to come to him 
and find rest. Take away the doubts in our hearts. Point us again to the objective realities of Christ and Him crucified and risen, standing in the fullness of His grace, clothed with power to save. This we ask in Jesus' name.